Hello and welcome to The History of Now, a podcast run from the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. I'm Chris Clark, and this is the sixth of a series of podcast conversations around themes connected with the current COVID-19 crisis. And today I'll be speaking with Jonathan Lamb, Andrew W. Mellon, Professor of English Literature at Vanderbilt University and a specialist on 18th century and maritime literature. He's the author of many studies, but in particular, of interest in particular for our discussion uh, today, is his work Scurvy, The Disease of Discovery, brought out with Princeton in 2007, and The Rhetoric of Suffering, reading the book of Job in the 18th century. Jonathan, uh, it seems to me that uh, pestilence of the kind we're experiencing now, I mean, it's not a term we're widely using at the moment about the COVID virus, but nevertheless, visitations by epidemic disease uh, are short-term shocks, both to individuals and to societies, and that for that reason, they're difficult to anchor in, in large narratives. And I'm thinking here of a point that was made by, uh, and in particular in the kinds of developmental narratives uh, of continuity and causation that we associate with the modern novel. And I'm thinking here of a point that Amitav Ghosh made in his book, The Great Derangement, where he asked the question, why is it that the problem of climatic catastrophe has had such a, a climate change and the possible catastrophic consequences of that? Why is it that this uh, scenario has had such a, 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 a shallow impact on fiction. And the answer he came up with was that the kinds of one-off anomalous events we can expect to become more common as a result of climate change don't fit well with, with novelistic style narratives. We rarely hear of characters in novels that does happen, but it's not common for characters in novels to be swept away from by floods or tsunamis or to be sucked up by hurricanes or or, or tornadoes or struck by lightning. That's regarded as a crude way of evading the real task of writing na narrative as we, as we mean it in the modern context. So how do, does one, how have human beings made sense of pestilence? How have they extracted meaning from it? I think probably the first thing they've done is to invoke the gods or God and see uh, the event of a pestilence as some kind of some kind of retribution for sins committed and so they appeal to the gods or the god uh, and ask for um they ask for some kind of um minimization of their condition i mean they want they want to be made better but they certainly don't want to be made any worse and that gives them some kind of hope um it restores an element of temporality into what would otherwise be in your happy phrase, a pool of time. Um, now, that's not always the case, and it's not always true that gods fix things. They also can make them worse. But uh, the gods as an element are going to be important for a lot of people in a pestilential condition. That's interesting. I mean, it's true that the Bible, especially the Mosaic Bible, is full of pestilence, and that pestilence is often willed by God. You think of uh, Exodus 9.15, for now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence. Or Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's warning, 29.17, behold, I will send upon them, he's speaking for the day to hear, the sword, the famine and the pestilence, and will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. And we've recently seen how persistent this way of understanding epidemic disease uh, 
remained. I mean, talking with um, with with colleagues in medieval and early modern history, it, it's quite clear that plague years in, in early modern Europe, for example, saw the prohibition not just of dangerous behavior from the perspective of, of containing contagion, but also of all kinds of frivolity that might be seen as offending God or offensive to God. And think of the recent appearance of the businessman Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow, uh, a, a sort of bedware, a, a bed equipment tycoon, a specialist in pillows, alongside Donald Trump on the Rose Garden podium of the White House. Lindell sort of lurched off from uh, his scripted appearance and, and went on a kind of off-piste off uh, monologue in which he suggested that COVID-19 was God's way of punishing America for its godlessness. And I quote, he said, God, Americans had taken God out of their schools and lives. A nation had turned its back on God. I encourage you to use this time at home to get back in the word, read our Bibles and spend time with our families. So this is a very persistent way of making sense of pe pestilence, uh, at least in some quarters. Um, but what happens to the meaning of pestilence if God or the gods are withdrawn from the story or if they're place in the story is ambivalent. And I'm thinking here of the book of Job. Well, all the examples you've given and, and the examples that Lindell seems to allude to are, um, are, are cases where God is punishing human beings for their, for their errors or their sins or um, their impiety. I mean, it's punishment they, and they know what they've done wrong and they must propitiate God before he'll put things right. Now, in the book of Job, Job, the whole theme of the book of Job is that he doesn't understand what has happened to him. That is to say, he's lost everything. He's lost his whole family. He's lost his estate. Uh, he's covered, his skin is covered with boils. Um, he's in great pain. But most of all, he's in a state of imbecility. He doesn't know why this has happened to him because he can't think of anything that he's done wrong. And... Um, I mean, one of the great dramatic ironies of the book of Job is that um, the reason God has put him to this test is not because <laughs> Job has been in any way um, deficient in piety. It's because, in fact, he's been totally pious and God is so pleased with him that he swanked off to Satan about Job and said, look at my servant Job. There is none like him upon the earth. And of course, Satan tempts God by saying, <laughs> no man is good for nothing. And so the tests begin. And uh, um, Job never really understands that he's been the object of a wager on the part of God with Satan. Yes, this um, is the extraordinary thing, isn't it? That God tolerates the tribulations of Job, but he's not himself the author of them. It, it says in, in the book, it says, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. It's Satan's doing, not God. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, but God has let it happen. So God's providence here, I mean, God's providence is either um, transparent. I mean, you know what you've done wrong. You know what you've got to do to get God to put it right. Uh, or it's inscrutable. You can never tell um, why it is that you're suffering. Um, but in this case, it's almost as if Job has a kind of intuition that he is being used as, as a stake in a game of chance. Um, and that leaves him in a, in a very serious state of, um, 
of um, puzzlement. I am full of confusion. Um, why is light given to a man whose way is hid? Uh, and this, of course, is fuel to the comforters who all say, well, there's no smoke without fire, mate. You know, um, this hasn't happened to you for nothing. Uh, and this drives uh, Job to a, a, a fit of real impatience with them. Um, and it's just as well that God actually accuses them of having not spoken rightly of him uh, at the end of the story. But uh, no, it's, um, it's it, 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 I mean, Job, the book of Job is, I think, fascinating because the confusion that he's in is so, is so limitless. Mm. Absolutely. The pathos of it is extraordinary. But it's interesting that although he has every reason to feel completely abandoned, um, like a later uh, human being who will, who will suffer, in the name of God, and will also for a moment at least feel abandoned by God. Um, there is, you still need God in this story to make sense of what Job is going through. And, uh, and I read in preparation for our conversation, I took a look at a medical paper which uh, makes an attempt to diagnose Job without any reference to divine agency and concludes that he may well have been suffering from a, a rare genetic disorder known as STAT3 loss of function autosomal dominant hyper IgE syndrome, oh, wow. which, which is also interesting enough known for obvious reasons as Job syndrome. Uh, wow. professionals familiar with this particular disorder but in any case that's what happens if you take god right out but you know if we move on now to um to to other classical narratives classical narratives not biblical ones but but narratives canonical narratives from the greco-roman world what do we find there if we look for example at at homer well homer's homer's iliad begins with um with with agamemnon committing um a, a, an error he um he, in effect, um, insults Apollo by um, treating his priest with contumely. Uh, and the priest is Chryses, the father of Chryseis, who has been taken prisoner uh, in a raid on Thebes and brought back to the siege at, at uh, Troy. And her father's come to the camp to get her back. And... Um, and Agamemnon just heaps foul language on him and says, you know, basically bugger off. Uh, um, and um, you can take your ransom with you because you're not getting her back. She's going to be with me for the rest of her life. And so Chryses, uh, the father, uh, prays to Apollo to take revenge on the Greeks for this. And so Apollo does, and he sends a plague to the camp. And everybody in the camp knows that some kind of some kind of propitiation is required, and the propitiation is to give crises back to her father with no ransom demanded at all. But the price of that in Agamemnon's uh, um, dual accounting book is um, to take Achilles' prize from that particular raid, who is called Briseis. And that starts the whole fuss between Agamemnon and Achilles, in which Jove, now Jupiter, is included because Achilles prays to Jupiter to put things right, to punish Agamemnon. So, the, so, the, narrative, so the narrative begins with a pestilence that is caused by a disturbance in the relationship between men and gods. Yeah, yes. 
extraordinary. And it shows you that there's a politics in Olympus, you know, that, that, that human beings know nothing about uh, or not much about anyhow. And it's that sort of, those sorts of, it's those sorts of political battles in heaven that, that seem to cause a lot of problems, especially when Juno finds out that, 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 um, that Jove has been uh, unfaithful with a mortal woman. That, that's real trouble. So there's an opacity and unpredictability, uh, unpredictability about the god's own behaviour. Yes. Caprice, yeah, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. If we if we roll forward now at great speed, a couple of centuries to to the Athenian um, historian um, and and citizen uh, Thucydides, who who wrote, of course, a, a famous account of the history of the Peloponnesian War, died in around about 400 BC. Um, in that history of the war, um, Thucydides recalls an event which he himself experienced, the um, Athenian plague, which took, broke out in the city in the second year of the war against the Spartans, um, and it killed around about a quarter of the population in, in the most crowded areas of the city of Athens. Um, it killed perhaps between, nobody knows for certain, of course, between 75 and 100,000 people altogether. It was a huge catastrophe. Um, visited upon a city that was already under extreme strain uh, thanks to this war. And Thucydides himself uh, recalls this pestilence. He himself suffered from it and re recovered from it. He describes a plague so severe and deadly that no one who could remember anything, no one who lived at the time, could remember anything remotely like it in living memory. He recalls the very high death rates among physicians because of their frequent and repeated contacts with the, with the sick and the dying. Uh, we still don't know what this disease was. There's a whole range of different um, hypotheses, um, ranging from typhoid epidemic typhoid fever to um, an e Ebola-like um, viral hemorrhagic fever. After all, this, this disease was said, at least by Thucydides, to have come from Ethiopia via Libya. But nobody knows for sure what this disease was, but it appears to have been a catastrophic disease with a very uh, ferocious um, fatality rate. Well, what's interesting about what Thucydides has to say, though, is that he doesn't integrate the gods into the into the causation of this pestilence in any way at all. Uh, he notes that the disease struck the pious and the impious with equal ferocity. Um, he notes that the Athenians, far from from uh, from cleaving to their gods, ab uh, gradually abandoned them. Um, as the houses emptied and the burial, burial sites filled, they cast aside their ancient traditions. They threw the bodies of loved ones into the nearest funeral pyres they could find. And with the caving in of rituals, he, he suggests, came a collapse of order, of social and of moral order, with men, as he puts it, now coolly venturing on what they had formerly done in a corner. So there, um, really, it's, 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 a, it's a purely human disaster. Uh -huh. Yes, that's interesting. Well, the, the other writer um, of interest to us is, is Lucretius in the sixth book of um, The Nature of Things, where he picks up on Thucydides um, and also writes about the plague of Athens. That's what ends the book. Uh, and he puts the story the other way around almost. Uh, mm -hmm. He says it begins with the moral decay of Athens. Everybody is too rich, too greedy, too too lustful, too lascivious, uh, and this is this is why things are going wrong, and why fever invades them. This is the cause, um, and he describes he describes he describes the fever too. He says uh, fever 
um, is first of all fever, then uh, a, a, a very sore throat. After that, when passing through the throat, the fell disease filled the chest, then all the barrier of barriers of life did totter. I mean, very much like what we're familiar with today. So you'd be a raging thirst, you'd last nine days, and then there'd be death. And he describes the funerals, the fact that there are too many, too many corpses to bury, um, and says that what happens then is the afflicted lose heart. Um, for indeed, now neither the worship of the gods nor their power was much regarded. So, I mean, people have even given up on looking for an ultimate um, an ultimate point of intelligibility for what is happening to them. Uh, they just um, they just uh, are stranded, stranded on this or drowning in this pool of time. Uh, very interesting because in, it, we know from um, these conversations we had the other day with um, with Jane Stevens Crawshaw and, and John Henderson um, that there is not in in early modern Florence or in Venice, which are very hard hit by the plague during plague years in the 17th century, there is not a general collapse in religious faith, um, or, or nor is there a, a collapse in social order. Uh, people don't venture out to do boldly what they had previously done in the corner. Um, on the contrary, there's a, a kind of clinging to social order and a clinging to routine, which I think we also see in today's COVID-19 crisis, uh, a reluctance to uh, venture away from what's familiar and, and routinized. And uh, in fact, the, the, the plague years often ended in early modern Italy with um, enormous masses of thanksgiving and te deums and so on to yeah. thank the deity for restoring uh, normality again, and which brings us, of course, into the into the 17th into the 17th century and our next way station on this sort of whistle stop tour through world histories or European histories pestilences. Um, uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, this terrible plague that broke out uh, in 1665 in London, though his book, of course, wasn't uh, published until 1722. So, Jonathan, do you think, looking at, um, at Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, is, is it a narrative of the breakdown of society, or is it a story about the robustness of societal and moral norms? Well, I think it's, a, I think it's about robustness of, of, of social norms, uh, um, to the extent that that's what's in Defoe's mind when he sets out to write it, because... Um, uh, there was a plague expected in London, which never actually eventuated. But what he wanted to do was give people advice. I mean, a great project writer. So this was a, a, a project, a project, um, uh, um, a scheme for people to learn by uh, in the event of an emergency. Um, but the what he what he defends for half of the story. Uh, if you can call it the story, is um, the shutting up of houses. He, he takes on the issue of quarantine, of, uh, of lockdown, as we call it today. And he's, he says it's a terrible thing to lock people in a house with somebody dying of plague, but that is the only way to contain the outbreak. And he says he, he is aware of the misery and the pain and the terror this causes, but he says it is necessary if the if the city is to survive. And and his 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 that's fascinating. His account is is punctuated, isn't it, with extremely um, dramatic and placative vignettes and episodes. Yes, yes. 
what he wants what he wants to say is there the, the only way out of this is is by by municipal commandment really but his own politics rebel against this so uh, he would much rather see examples of human ingenuity i mean one one example of human ingenuity is to take some gunpowder and set off a bomb underneath the watchman outside the front door so you can escape from your house and escape from the plague if you're lucky um but he, one of his stories that he tells, which is, is, is very interesting because it is um, paradoxical, is of the waterman um, who, uh, whose family are, have got the plague. So he can't, he can't go near them. So he earns money by running his boat up and down the river, so bringing supplies, provisions to the ships moored there. Uh, and whatever he earns, he leaves on a bench midway between the wharf and his house. And his wife will come out and pick it up. Uh, and the man is, 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 is very moved. I mean, he's, he's in tears when Defoe talks or HF talks to him. Um, but he says, this is the only way I can see to survive. But of course, you realize that, I mean, the man himself is possibly spreading the plague by doing, by doing this trading up and down the river. Mm. Um, but uh, for Defoe, Defoe sees this as a magnificent example of private ingenuity, just not, you know, not giving up, just just doing the best you can. I mean, standing up for life. And there's another story he tells along these lines, which is the, the, the this um, this natural, you know, this 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 fool who has been sleeping on a bulk uh, and has been picked up as a corpse and thrown into the big uh, lake pit um, at Mount Mill. And um, he, he, he wakes up in the pit and finds out and, and everybody's r running away and saying, oh, but you're dead, you're dead. And he said, but I'm not dead. That's why I'm crying out. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And um, one of the other stories about three men who escaped London, I mean, starts with the man who leads the escape saying, I was born in England and have a right to live in it if I can. So there's a kind of libertarian element in all of this that Defoe is insensibly attracted to, but it's, he's enough attracted to it to actually ditch his support for the shutting up of houses by the time he gets to the end. But of course, this leaves him at sea in terms of his own, you know, his own plan for a project for the public. He's, he's can't, he can't really recommend disorder. Uh, and he can't either recommend, recommend municipal commandments. No, but um, his, his narrative involves the understanding that a collective disaster is really a, a, a vast sort of assemblage of individual disasters. Yes, yes, that's true. And I mean, some of, I mean, why he, he makes the, the, the whole account so vivid because he can pick these anecdotes up and, and, and make them very, very vivid. I mean, a man... <laughs> So agonized with pain because it was a very painful form of, of, of disease. Uh, running down the street, diving into the Thames, swimming across to um, to the to the southern uh, side of it, and then just swimming back again. I mean, just just to get rid of the pain. These sorts of eruptions of energy. Mm. He also notices that people will do in the light what they would have reserved for the dark. That that, that men will will try and copulate with women. Um, as, as a kind of final gesture, uh, because they've got the plague and they want somebody else to have it too. And they also want 
some kind of sexual gratification at the same time. So before they go, um, I mean, the, the precisely the vividness um, and the granularity of his account are, are, are problematic, there aren't they? Because it's the point has been made, of, you know, many times as a, a literature a discussion about this that goes back into the 18th century about the um, the the truth value of this account, and the point has been made that Defoe was in, although he he uh, that the book is written by someone called H.F. who was a, who was supposedly writing in their own name, um, so it's kind of falsely framed because Defoe doesn't initially, or in the in the early versions of the book, didn't announce himself as the author. Um, he claimed to have found this manuscript and to be printing it. And then there's the fact that he was a, a little child when the plague happened. He did experience it, but only as a small child. And so the point has been made, or the claim has been made, that this is all just so much hogwash and made up, made up stuff. And Addison, famously, though perhaps, you know, professional envy was part of this, called Defoe a false, shuffling, prevaricating rascal. Others said that he had forged this story and imposed it, imposed it on the world as truth. Um, what's left after all this cavilling about about um, Defoe's, the truth value of Defoe's journalism slash novel? Yes. Well, I think, I think true uh, in the end are the numbers. I mean, one thing Defoe did do was look very closely at the, at the bills of mortality and was able to track the, the plague by looking at how um, how, how the death count rises in each patch going eastward as the plague advances. Um, and so, I mean, he had an instinct for statistics and he knew that if you wanted some kind of minimal intelligibility to the, the, the event of the plague, then numbers would tell you something. Um, but that really is all he's left with because at the beginning, um, he says, um, it is impossible to say anything that is able to give, sorry, it's impossible possible to say anything that is able to give a true idea to those who did not see it. Other than this, that the plague was indeed very, very, very dreadful and such as no tongue can express. So mm -hmm. he knows already that he could, he's not going to be able to say very much about this that is true or communicable. It's interesting, though, you speak of his interest in statistics, and this um, theme has come up in several of the conversations, particularly those that have to do with the 17th century. Um, yeah. the, the, the mortality bills um, with, the, with their lines of with skulls around the edges. Um, we talked about those with, with Romola um, Davenport and uh, Samantha Williams. There's um, the interest in, in statistics in early modern Florence and Venice, where they had quite sophisticated number gathering, number crunching by the Sanita, by the public health authorities, who for obvious reasons were very interested in knowing something about the um, about death rates and numbers of infections and so on. But, um, in, you know, the, as I mentioned before, this, this, this narrative by Defoe is supposedly, you know, hails from the pen of someone who's named in the text as H.F., very mysteriously, who could HF be? Well, it might be his uncle Henry Foe. Um, that's 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 what I always understood. Um, but there, there was no certain ascription of the initials to an actual identity. But if it was his uncle Henry Foe, this is before the before Daniel uh, Frenchified himself and made his name more fancy by adding the de. Um, then in that case, this is not just uh, invention. It's and it, on the other hand, it's not really sort of personal reportage and description either, nor is it just historical research. It's a kind of um, 
ventriloquism. It's a bit like what David Eggers does when he uh, when he speaks in the voice of a of a refugee from from Sudan or or um, or of a you know in this in that book What is the What? A wonderful attempt to evoke the refugee experience or um, or his book Zaitun, in which he speaks with the voice of a of a of an American of an American citizen of Middle Eastern heritage who's caught up in the in the Hurricane Katrina disaster in New Orleans, and yeah. and as it were speaking with the voices of other with the voice of another is what Defoe is doing here. But it, it doesn't mean it's untruthful. It's just it just occupies a complicated place between journalism, the novel, and other forms of reportage. It's true, and another person you could mention would be Peter Carey, a um, true history of the Kelly Gang, where he, um, you know, he ventriloquizes um, Kelly. Absolutely. For, for a lot of the time, he does. Yeah. And weaving into the into the writing pieces of language from Kelly himself. Yes. The jewelry, jewelry letter. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So if we then roll forward again, and our whistle stop tour because we're running out of time. Um, into the 19th century, we and the 20th century. Now we've arrived at the 20th century in the 1940s, and it's um, time for Camus, Albert Camus' La Peste, which narrates a, a cholera epidemic. That that uh, I'm sorry, it, it narrates an epidemic of the plague that broke out in Oran, a city in Algeria, um, supposedly in the 1940s. Though it's loosely based on a real uh, epidemic of cholera that broke out in Oran about a century before in 1849, following French colonization. Um, it's a strange novel. It's set in um, Algeria, um, but there are no uh, Arab characters. There's not a single notable Arab character. Um, there are no important women characters either. It's a, a sort of male-only moral world, and it's a moral world in which some are fighting the disease, others are trying to make sense of the disease. You have the selfless doctor Bernard Rieu, who is toiling away for the sick. Um, Jean Tarou, the, the sterling organizer of volunteers uh, to help with the, the sort of effort to alleviate the effects of the disease. Um, you have sort of ambivalent characters like Raymond Rambert, who's trapped in the city and initially wants to escape, is only there by accident, uh, but then opts to stay at, out of a sense of solidarity with the suffering of those uh, who are there. And then the mentally unstable Cotard, who um, starts by becoming a kind of profiteer, selling contraband cigarettes and inferior liquor. Um, because, of course, everything's been shut down around the city of Oran, but who later goes mad and is arrested. And then you have the priest, uh, Father Panelou, through whom the, this older mode of, of pestilential interpretation is able to enter the narrative, because Panelou insists in his sermons that the plague is a surge, a scourge, I'm sorry, sent by God, um, that uh, is intended to, to tribulate or to punish those who've hardened their hearts against him. When a child that he's been attending dies, um, he insists in a further sermon that even the death of an innocent child is a test of faith. It all has a providential functionality. Uh, since God has willed the death of this child, so the Christian should will it too. A very big ask, uh, as it were, for the parents, uh, for bereaved parents. And there's a very interesting minor character, the asthma patient, who receives regular visits from Dr. Rieu. He's a 75-year-old Spaniard with a very rugged face who simply sits in his bed all day and, and measures the passing of time by putting peas from one jug into another. And it seems to me, um, you mentioned before the sort of pooling of time. And I think that, you know, that character more than any other captures the peculiar quality of epidemic time that, you know, it passes slowly. Time expands around the things that we do. And there's a sense that it's not 
normal time. This is an exceptional condition in every conceivable, in every imaginable, imaginable way. Um, we're outside the structure of our normal lives. Um, and when we re-enter normality, I think we may find it more difficult to remember what this was like than we perhaps currently think we do. But in any case, all those options are present there in that novel. Engagement was a commitment to supporting the sick, to working against the disease. Madness, which I suppose in some ways is, a, is, is one possible way of responding to these existential threats. Faith and, um, and a kind of, you know, means end uh, logic around profiteering, trying to benefit from what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I think that what goes around comes around, and that um, you know the 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 recovery of a sense of community that this kind of this kind of visitation uh, can provoke um, is 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 one of the real advantages. Um, uh, but it does require some kind of um, some kind of firm pattern in the future from which that kind of retrospection can take place. And it was interesting to me that when the Queen gave her speech to the nation last week, that was what she supposed, that there would be a time in the future when we would look back and see that, um, that, that all, 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 the, all the terrible things that are happening now, all the self-sacrifice that has to be made in order to overcome COVID-19 was worth it and brought us together. And, you know, you feel that when you guys on the streets at eight o'clock at night and hear people clapping. So I think I think I think there is there can be a focus uh, for these various efforts at making things intelligible. I mean um, that it's not just a case of of, of um, atomic imbecility where you don't know what the reason is, you don't know why it happened. Um, what you say is that because it happened, we've managed to learn something about ourselves, which is valuable. Yes, we've learned many things. I mean, I agree with you that these these scenes where uh, I've experienced them here around my place, where people stand outside their houses and and clap, um, the the sort of invisible heroes of the NHS, because of course the um, the NHS workers are never are never you know in plain sight. They're off somewhere else working in hospitals or in ambulances, uh, and so on. But you know, and so what this means is that pe people are, of course, signalling their their gratitude and their sense of of dependency upon those whose work in normal times often perhaps is not rewarded or 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 valued as much as it as it ought to be. Uh, but at the same time, they're communicating with each other about their a uh, sort of you know shared experience, a shared experience of a contemporary um, moment of 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 an of anomaly, and do you think that these, I mean, th these are ways in which we can extract meaning from uh, from these events? The question is, will they be lasting lessons? Will we learn them? Will we will we remember them after the, this this moment of duress is over? Well, I think we're going to uh, certainly not be corrupted by wealth in the future, <laughs> so we won't end up like the Athenians, you know, um, made uh, amoral by by good living. Um, that is the very that's the very dark i'm glad you mentioned the athenians because you know the the downside of the the real downside of the thucydidean narrative is that it all ended very badly for athens um the plague weakened athens um to the extent that it was ultimately defeated by the um by the spartans i mean the plague isn't the only reason but it certainly gravely damaged the city it also damaged its institutions weakened its democracy and in the end 
uh, it, it's a, a very serious um, wound to this early experiment in popular democracy. And many have been wondering whether, you know, our democracies, our democratic institutions will survive the current crisis. I think that's true. I, th I, I think America is in really serious trouble being so badly led through this, through their um, experience of the crisis. Uh, on the other hand, it could have a very, very, um, a very good outcome in America. I mean, depending on what happens in the November election. So I don't know. It's, 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 it's. Uh, we're in the pool of time. We can't tell. But um, there will be a point in the future where we can look back, and I hope what we see is something that is heartwarming and gives us a sense of community, which is not stupid nationalism, but something better than that. Um, and uh, we'll all, if that is the case, then we'll all be the better for it. I think that's too good a note not to end on. So I'd like to thank Jonathan Lamb for this fascinating discussion about um, the literary echoes of pestilence. Thank you, Jonathan. You're very welcome.